From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, we'll talk about John Coltrane, the tenor player who started out with Miles Davis in the 50s and then in the mid-60s set out to pursue music as a quest for spiritual enlightenment. His most popular work was A Love Supreme. Now, a live performance from 1965 has been discovered and released, and Coltrane people are calling it nothing short of a revelation. We'll talk about Coltrane's place in black culture with Adam Schatz. But first, some amazing and good news about abolishing debt. Astra Taylor will explain in just a minute. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Astra Taylor is co-founder of the Debt Collective and the director of documentary films, including What is Democracy? and Zizek! Exclamation point. She's written for The New York Times, The New Yorker, The Baffler, and The Nation. Her books include Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone. We talked about it here. We reached her today in the Bay Area. Astra Taylor, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. Last time we talked here, it was about student debt. But remind us about the big picture, what the Debt Collective is and what it does. So the Debt Collective is a union for debtors, the first of its kind. And we have a big vision. So you mentioned student debt. We're very known for our work around pushing the issue of student debt cancellation. But our agenda and our vision is much broader than just student debt. We like to say that debtors are not in debt because we live beyond our means, but because we're denied the means to live. We have student debt because there is no free public education. We have medical debt because there is no universal health care. We take out payday loans and put things on credit cards because we're underpaid on the job. But there's another kind of debt, the debt people incur when they're caught up in the criminal punishment system. So these kinds of debts disproportionately affect black and brown communities. They come in myriad forms. So the debt collective uses the frame carceral debt to talk about the different kinds of debts people hold, debts from probation, from bail bond companies, from having to buy food in the commissary, from you have to, you're charged for phone calls, for emails, there's fines and fees. So all of these debts really add up. The average person caught up in the criminal punishment system comes out owing something like $13,000 in debt, that's not counting bail debt. Uh, in Florida, as we know, I'm sure people followed the issue with uh, felon disenfranchisement, that once the Florida voters had voted to enfranchise felons, then the Republican legislature figured out a way to say, well, not those who owe debts to the courts, which was the vast majority of people who had been incarcerated. So when we talk about abolishing these carceral debts, so what we see as the debt collective is that abolishing debts is very much connected to the abolition of the prison industrial complex. And that actually those things are very bound. And if we want economic justice, racial justice, we're going to have to think these things together. And you guys are not just pointing out that this is a problem. Now you are actually abolishing 
probation debt of tens of thousands of people, and you're setting out to abolish bail debt completely in California. Uh, Let's start with California. You know, I thought uh, with bail, when you show up for your trial, you get your money back. But you say there's a million people who owe money on their bail contracts. How come? We often talk about cash bail. I think it's really important to understand that that's a misnomer because most people don't have cash. In California, while it has a progressive reputation, the bail debt there is something like five times the national average. So the average bail bond that has to be posted is $50,000. It's very important for people to understand that you are required to pay bail before you've gone to trial. This is pre-trial. So what does that mean? It means people who have means, who have, have money, can get out of jail. But if you're poor, you essentially pay this extra penalty and have to languish there. And maybe that means that you don't pick up your kids from school. Maybe it means you miss your job, right? So rich people can get off, poor people are stuck. Well, what happens? Their loved ones, their friends and family members outside go to bail bonds companies. And again, they don't have the cash, so they borrow. It's actually credit, it's credit bail. And these bail bonds companies charge them a premium, 10%. So if the average bail debt or median bail debt in California is 50,000, 10% of that's five grand. And you don't get that money back. Even if you are let off, even if you go home scot-free because it was all a big mistake. So then your loved one and you as co-signers owe $5,000 to this bail company. But I thought the California Supreme Court ruled earlier this year that because of the presumption of innocence, you can't be confined to jail solely because you don't have enough money to pay bail. Bail can only be justified to prevent the risk of flight. And for most people, there is no risk of flight. So didn't that abolish bail in California? You would think so. And you think of the fact that in the United States, more broadly, that debtors' prisons are unconstitutional would also eliminate these kinds of shenanigans. But no, that's not the case. And so what happens is that all of these people who have incurred this bail debt in the past are stuck with it. Let me underline, in the past. Yes. And so with this this extra form of punishment, because let's call it that, that we see is illegal and unconstitutional, people are still paying through the nose for it. And it's extracting wealth from communities, disproportionately working class, disproportionately communities of color. But here's the thing. It turns out that these bail bonds companies were violating people's rights. Now that in its own, you know, that on its own isn't that surprising, but they were violating a specific component of California consumer protection law. And so the debt collective has made an app, the abolish bail debt tool. This is something we do. We often make apps to help people use their rights that is available for co-signers of bail bonds so that they can dispute these predatory bail debts. And we estimate that if this tool is really put to use, it can abolish upwards of $500 million of bail debt in California belonging to approximately a million people. Now, of course, people have to use the tool. We have to organize the ideas that it's not just about abolishing these individual debts, but building the power of these debtors to go and to demand more, not just saying cash bail is illegal, but to push even further than that. And that is, it's very important to try to find these, these rights that people have on the books that are being ignored and and to try to at least get us to a point where we can enact those so then we can go further. So news you can use, where can we find this abolish bail debt tool for people in California? Debtcollective.org. You can find all of our tools there.
And the Debt Collective is also at work in Mississippi and Florida, where you actually abolished probation debt for a lot of people. Tell us about how that works. On October 16th, we sent out letters to over 20,000 people, mainly in Mississippi, a few in Florida, that began with the phrase, jubilant greetings. We've abolished your debt. You no longer owe this probation debt. We revived something called the Rolling Jubilee. This was a a mechanism that we devised right after Occupy Wall Street. It was the first of its kind to buy and erase debt. We buy debts on the shadowy secondary debt market and we erase them. So we kind of act like debt collectors, but for good. In the years after Occupy, we erased tens of millions and hundreds of millions of dollars of medical debt, payday loans, tuition debt. And we know, we knew then, we still know, we can't buy and erase all the predatory debt in the world. So we put it into hibernation and we started the debt collective to build debtor power, to, to fight for shifts that would be systemic, that would stop this debt at its source. But we're in a pandemic right now and people are hurting. We have revived the rolling jubilee because of the pandemic and because the debt collective is now a functioning union and we see that it's a way for us to do something good for people, uh, to really liberate them, in this case from debts that, that cause them uh, to be at risk of reincarceration and to then organize people to push for those systemic changes. So yes, we bought this probation debt, $3 million worth for three cents on the dollar. And if we hadn't done that, they would be uh, harassed by debt collectors. And again, at risk of going back to jail, simply because they are poor. Most people like us don't know about this, but you found out that rich people can invest by buying debt. You buy portfolios of debt, I learned from the Debt Collective, for, as you say, pennies on the dollar because it's very hard to collect this debt. Then you hire debt collection agencies to go around and intimidate and terrorize people to try to get them to pay the debt, which they then pay to you because you have bought the debt. And you guys decided, we'll buy the debt and we won't collect on it. This is a brilliant idea. How did you think that up? It came from Occupy Wall Street again and from early meetings of what became the Debt Collective. It was, I will say that one of the instigators of it was the late and great anthropologist David Graeber, who wrote the book Debt, the first 5,000 years. It was kind of going through uh, the minds of a few people at the same time. And so we started meeting regularly. We started figuring out we had a big telethon to raise money, crowdfunded donations to do this. And, you know, again, we know it's not the solution, but it's a spark. It makes you realize, wow, my debts are for sale. They'll write them off, but just not to me. Right. And that somebody's profiting from my poverty. Right. They're profiting from the fact that I had to take an ambulance to the hospital or that I couldn't pay my utility bill on time because I'm not paid enough at the job. You know, I think it's a really powerful thing for us to do, especially when combined with organizing that is that is aimed at policy change. And so we're going to have a lot of amazing announcements uh, through the next six months. So I, I encourage people to stay tuned. The Debt Collective has a wonderful website where you say the real debts we owe are not to banks, lenders, or the government, but to each other. That's kind of a radical idea, but why is that relevant to student debt or credit card debt or this kind of probation debt? I think you need to do a moral accounting. This question of who owes what to whom is a really critical and deep question because, you know, part of what we we try to alleviate for people is not just their debts, but the shame and stigma they feel, the stress they feel. To say, hold on, you know what? You're actually entitled. You're actually maybe, you know, you're a creditor. You're entitled to a decent life. You're entitled to good schools, to good health care, to a healthy environment. And, you know, somehow 
our society is not meeting those obligations, in part because we are being sucked dry by a financial system in which bosses underpay us at work and then creditors say, hey, oh, you want to borrow the difference? All right, well, we'll take some fees and some interest there. And so we are, we're defaulting on our true debts. We're defaulting on our obligations. And we want to, we want to reclaim that language and say, okay, you know, if we abolish these debts, then we can provide for the things that we need to survive and thrive. And so there's a very different vision of who's entitled in this framework. And that's the radical horizon we're working towards. But we want to make a material difference in people's lives along the way. One of the greatest things the Debt Collective did was make student debt a political issue. This hadn't been an issue until Occupy Wall Street. And you guys started talking about it. Eventually, Bernie Sanders endorsed the idea. Elizabeth Warren campaigned. The two of them campaigned around different versions of abolishing student debt. Uh, Joe Biden then came along and and pledged during the campaign that he would, quote, immediately cancel a minimum of $10,000 of student debt per person. The New Yorker just had a report on where we stand on that. Where do we stand on Joe Biden's promise to abolish student debt? I just want to highlight, again, what you said, you know, Joe Biden, who has been a friend of creditors, he's the senator, he was the former senator from Delaware. He was very, very instrumental in the 2005 Bankruptcy Reform Act, with which repealed some protections for student debtors and actually caused a wave, a mini wave of home foreclosures before the big mortgage crisis. I mean, to, to have moved him to where he felt obliged to run on debt cancellation is big. And the thing is that we've also done his homework for him because that's what we do. So we did his homework and we said, hey, Joe, it turns out Congress already gave you the power to cancel all federal student loan debt in 1965 in the Higher Education Act. And guess what, Joe? You're already using that power because Donald Trump uh, has put the student loan payments on pause as part of his COVID relief plan. And interest is being canceled through this power, which is called Compromise and Settlement Authority. So guess what? It's already happening. Well, his administration seems to not want to have this ability. And so in the spring, the White House basically said, look, we're waiting on a memo to reveal our legal authority. Again, legal authority that is absolutely crystal clear. The White House chief of staff said in April that it will come in a few weeks. Well, there's delays and delays and delays. Of course, this is a delaying tactic. So the debt collective, uh, one of our co-founders, Thomas Gilkey, who was actually the main instigator of the Rolling Jubilee back in the day. He made a Freedom of Information Act request. And this was the scoop we gave to the New Yorker. And to break it, <laughs> to break it down, basically they've had the memo since April. And our suspicion is that the memo says what it should say, which is we do indeed have massive authority to do broad-based debt cancellation through executive action. And that, you know, for political reasons, they're reluctant to use it. So I think it's really important to put this into the public debate right now, which is that you know the, the Biden administration is not waiting on a memo. They have the authority to cancel as much federal student debt as they want. It is an issue of political will. And so we're calling on student debtors and their allies to get ready for massive action in January, right before the payment pause that has been on since last March lifts, because a lot of people are gonna suffer when they have to pay their student loans again. Last question, if you cancel 45 million people's student debts. Do you think people would notice? Do you think voters would notice? Do you think it might have an impact on the midterms of 2022? 
I think so. This is part of why I'm telling the Democrats they need to do this. It's not just about the interest of debtors. It's their self-interest as a party. And, you know, I think it's also important to note that part of why it's such a popular position is because I think people intuitively recognize that even if they're not student debtors themselves, they benefit. Maybe their kids would benefit or a friend or a neighbor. There's lots of research that shows this would be an enormous bottom-up stimulus. All that money spent on student loan servicing could go to starting businesses, buying homes, you know, paying for your your family's well-being. So there's huge benefits, which is why over a dozen cities with the help of the Debt Collective have um, have issued city council resolutions saying, Joe Biden, use your executive authority to cancel student debt because Philadelphia will benefit, because Boston will benefit. In other words, the whole community will benefit from this policy. And we've seen from polls that one in five Trump voters say that they would be tempted by the Democratic Party if this was done. We've seen some uh, very uh, dramatic polling with Black voters. And so, yeah, we need policies that are legible, that improve people's lives. We're in a pandemic. And I am telling you that people will notice when you cancel their student debt. Astra Taylor, she's a co-founder of the Debt Collective, a movement that's abolished billions of dollars of student debt, medical debt, payday loans, and credit card debt. Now they've gone to work on probation debt. Astra, thanks for all your work. Thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having me. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Now it's time to talk about John Coltrane, the tenor player who started out with Miles Davis in the 50s and then in the mid-60s set out to pursue music as a quest for spiritual enlightenment. His classic work was A Love Supreme, a single piece 33 minutes long. It became the most popular record of his career. Now a live performance from 1965 has been discovered and released, and Coltrane people are calling it nothing short of a revelation. For comment, we turn to Adam Schatz. He's the U.S. editor of the London Review of Books and former literary editor of The Nation. He also writes for the New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker, and The New York Review, where his piece on John Coltrane and the new recording of A Love Supreme appears online at nybooks.com. We reached him today at home in Brooklyn. Adam Schatz, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me, John. John Coltrane's most popular recording before A Love Supreme, his signature song was My Favorite Things. It's from The Sound of Music. It's a waltz. It's by Rodgers and Hammerstein. It's Middlebrow Broadway and then a Hollywood studio classic where Julie Andrews sang about whiskers on kittens, bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens. How did John Coltrane turn this into his song? You know, Amiri Baraka uh, said that Coltrane was the first jazz musician of his time to break out of what he called the Tin Pan Alley Penitentiary. <laughs> Coltrane, who was a brilliant composer, you know, made a name for himself by taking this saccharine Tin Pan Alley song 
and turning it into a piece that sounded like, I don't know, some whirling dervish. Uh, you know, first of all, what instrument does he play my favorite things on? He plays it on soprano. And he gives it this kind of wailing Eastern tinge. He'd been listening to a lot of Indian music, especially uh, Carnatic music. And he plays the piece over 14 minutes. It's, it's uh, rather austere, it's almost minimalist. He imbues my favorite things with this dark sense of, of enchantment, which is as far from the original as you can imagine. In a sense, Coltrane's My Favorite Things is not the Rodgers and Hammerstein My Favorite Things. And playing it on soprano saxophone instead of his instrument, the tenor, what's the significance of that? I think that the soprano in that performance has more of a kind of Eastern uh, sound. Uh, than the, the tenor saxophone might have. But Coltrane's tenor saxophone, of course, is most unusual. He has a sound that is almost free of vibrato until the end of his career. It's very dry, it's kind of gnarled. It's not the kind of smooth sound that some people seek. He has a sound that is very earnest. It's not a playful sound. This is not Sonny Rollins. This is not Sonny Rollins quoting from the American popular songbook. Coltrane didn't quote other people's songs. There's, some, there's, a, there's a kind of gravitas in Coltrane's playing, which is sui generis, I think. Well, Coltrane became famous as part of the Miles Davis quintet in the late uh, 50s, especially on Kind of Blue, 1959. Miles Davis was the angry black man who you know, turned his back on uh, white audiences at in live performances. That was not John Coltrane's persona. It was certainly not his life. Miles had a, a reputation, I think, somewhat um, unfair for being unfriendly to audiences because he turned his back. He actually did that because he wanted to hear himself better. It wasn't, um, I don't think it was an expression of insult towards his audience. But in any case, Coltrane had a very different attitude. He was so, he had such concentration on what he was performing that uh, he scarcely acknowledged the audience, but for, for very different reasons. Uh, he seemed to have no thoughts other than what he was doing with his horn. He was not a showman uh, in the least. He wasn't a defiant showman or an ingratiating showman. <laughs> he just played his saxophone and uh, he was said to even sleep with, with his instrument. He was practicing his instrument for up to eight or nine hours a day. I mean, this was a kind of uh, discipline that lends itself to legend and to myth-making, which is certainly the case uh, in Coltrane's life. Miles Davis was the embodiment of 1950s and 1960s cool. Uh, John Coltrane wasn't cool. He wasn't hip. He, he was a, a very purposeful, diligent, quiet man of the black middle class who had little interest in being part of any scene. By the early 1960s, when he became involved with a woman who became his second wife, uh, Alice McLeod, later Alice Coltrane, uh, they were living in uh, Dix Hills in Long Island in a leafy suburb. This was not the jazz life. He had known a bit of the jazz life, of course, early on during his 10-year uh, addiction to, to heroin and during uh, in a period of, of alcoholism. Um, and he wanted to get as far as he could from the jazz life as possible. And, and he did by absorption in his spiritual life. In that spiritual life, he, he was quoted as saying, I believe in all religions. Was he serious about that? What did it mean? 
He was. Uh, Coltrane was very uh, ecumenical in his approach to spirituality. I mean, he had been raised in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. His, his uh, grandfather had been um, a legendary uh, preacher, very fiery, uh, courageously militant in his defense of, of Black rights. So he grew up in this ambiance of Southern militancy in North Carolina and uh, deep spiritual worship. But when he returned uh, to spiritual practice in 1957, which is the great year for him, the year of, uh, of his epiphany, he began to develop a very personal idiosyncratic form of spirituality not attached to any one religious institution. It was a mix of Sufi Islam, Hinduism, uh, Buddhism, and still other uh, beliefs. He, he was generous, he was universalistic, he was a, a very much a man of peace. And he said that every person, I think he said every man, but this is 1965 or so, has access to the spiritual truth. I think that was a very profound belief of his. And tell us how he wrote A Love Supreme. He wrote A Love Supreme in 1965 after a five-day retreat at his own home. He basically locked himself into a room and came out five days later announcing to Alice Coltrane that he had received, it was 1964, and shortly after receiving uh, this composition, he went into the studio and recorded it with the group that was known uh, as his classic quartet. Uh, his producer at Impulse Records, Bob Thiel, was not particularly keen on Coltrane performing a suite of original compositions. I think he probably wanted him to play a standard and to maybe play a few of his own compositions, but to mix it up, nothing too challenging. And Coltrane insisted, and by then he was, he was such a popular artist that he had the power to make his own choices and to make them stick. You write at the New York Review website, nybooks.com, that a love supreme conveys a sense of searching and striving with a world-weary melancholy and transcendental yearning. How does Coltrane do that? In A Love Supreme, uh, Coltrane builds something very complex on something that is very simple, this, this four-note motif that has become almost as recognizable as the defining motif of Beethoven's uh, Fifth Symphony. He takes this motif and we hear him play it uh, in every key of the saxophone, and then we hear Coltrane's voice overdubbed 19 times intoning a love supreme. And, and this you know, gives a kind of hypnotic uh, intensity to the opening melody uh, acknowledgement of, of the suite. Coltrane also has a way of creating this intense sense of beauty and then tearing it apart. And, and he has to rebuild it again. You, you sense that that, that the, the achievement is always somewhat fragile. It's always at the risk of being torn apart or taken down. And so there is this kind of agonistic struggle that goes on in each of his improvisations that feels kind of existential. A Love Supreme was a studio album with my favorite things. He played it many, many different ways, improvised around. It seems like he didn't want to do that with A Love Supreme. Is that right? 
that that's correct. A Love Supreme was released in December 1964. And until recently, we were only aware of one performance, uh, one live performance, uh, which was uh, a performance at the Antigua Jazz Festival uh, at Juan Le Pam in the summer of uh, 1965. It's a beautiful recording and stood alone and, and apart. A very faithful reproduction, although a longer one, uh, of, of the original. And I think that this fed into a, a perception that Coltrane did not want to tamper with his masterpiece. The contrast with uh, My Favorite Things is quite stark. My Favorite Things was a piece that he reinvented hundreds of times. However, as it turns out, there is this other performance uh, of A Love Supreme, uh, which he performed live in Seattle in early October 1965 with the classic quartet, but also with a few other musicians. Now, the people who perform with him on this version, in addition to the drummer Elvin Jones, the pianist McCoy Tyner, the bassist Jimmy Garrison, the other three members of the classic quartet, are the tenor saxophonist Pharaoh Sanders, who played with Coltrane until the end of his life from 1965 on, uh, Carlos Ward, a Panamanian alto saxophonist, and Raphael Garrett, uh, a bassist. So it's a septet recording of A Love Supreme. In the 60s, a lot of jazz people recorded works of militant protest music. Max Roach, Charles Mingus, Sonny Rollins, you know, the Freedom Now Suite. Coltrane was considered the true black revolutionary of jazz at this point, but he wasn't really political. Is, is that a fair statement? I'm not sure that he wasn't political, but in a way he trans he, he transcended politics. He transcended, he was above the fray. He was a kind of um, a mystical and spiritual figure and viewed by other musicians, especially by black musicians, as a, as a prophet. John Coltrane was certainly no stranger to the civil rights struggle, and he expressed uh, admiration at one point for uh, Malcolm X. Uh, he attended one of his speeches. But on the whole, Coltrane didn't really get mixed up in politics and rarely acknowledged the political in a direct way in his song titles. However, Coltrane embodied a kind of a shift towards Africa and what was then called the third world in his music. He did that in terms of the kind of music that he was bringing into jazz, the use of drones, the use of certain kinds of repetition, the intense emphasis on percussion and polyrhythms. He was Africanizing jazz, taking it away from the jazz of Tin Pan Alley, for one thing. So the whole emo emotive thrust of the music pointed towards Africa and the third world. So did his titles, titles like Africa, Ogunde, India, Liberia. So the spiritual dimension of the music had, you might say, an implicit politics if not an explicit radicalism. And what's more, Coltrane wrote probably the most important civil rights elegy of his time, a piece called Alabama, 
in memory of those four black girls who were killed in the church bombing in Alabama. And Alabama is a short and absolutely harrowing uh, song. I believe that Alabama was used in Eyes on the Prize. And uh, it, it's, I, I think it's notable that Coltrane used that one word, Alabama, to signify the depth of the sorrow and suffering of his people in, in, in 1963 and that whole era. And it survives and I think retains a power that transcends that of some of the great civil rights pieces, which are wonderful, but which feel like time capsules. Alabama is eternal. In the last two years of his life, Coltrane recorded more than 10 new albums. What are those like? Those albums are, I think, some of the, the best work of, of his career. They were albums like Sonship and, and, and Transition. They are the albums that show Coltrane uh, moving beyond his modal work, moving beyond even uh, albums like A Love Supreme, um, exploring a greater freedom uh, in improvisation. Uh, emphasizing his relationship to Elvin Jones uh, even more with these extended uh, duets uh, between the two of them. They're not always the easiest uh, to listen to. They're, they certainly are not background music, but I think they're some of the most exhilarating work that he recorded, and they're collectively uh, known as, quote-unquote, late Coltrane. In conclusion here, what makes the new live recording of A Love Supreme important to us today? For one thing, it's a fantastic album of live jazz. Okay, I think we have to underscore that this is, this is great music. And although Coltrane's a little muffled uh, in the mix, he sounds absolutely glorious. And it's just incredibly exciting to hear him play his masterpiece but I think the other reason that this album is important to us is that it shows how Coltrane's conception of his masterpiece continued to evolve as his own music changed. And he was changing very rapidly. I don't think there's any group in, in music at that time that evolved as rapidly as the Coltrane Quartet other than the Beatles. I mean, you look at the difference between early Beatles albums and albums like Revolver or the White Album and Abbey Road. I mean, that's quite a journey. And Coltrane's journey uh, is just as dramatic in some ways, I would say more dramatic. In The Love Supreme, the studio version, Coltrane is having a conversation with his God. It's a very introspective album. It's the confession, the expression of an individual believer. This album is more like a church service. It's more like a group celebration. It's wild, it's incantatory, and it's filled with exotic ethnic percussion instruments that were to become very much the soundtrack of so many jazz albums in that period. So it looks back to the orchestral sound that he developed in albums like Africa Brass while pointing towards this future that he helped to create, but in which he couldn't fully participate because he died in 1967. So we're hearing Coltrane's past and the future of jazz in this album. 
Adam Schatz wrote about John Coltrane in the newly discovered live performance of A Love Supreme for the New York Review of Books website. You can read it online at nybooks.com. Adam, this was wonderful. Thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.